So, loved ones, let us read responsively now Lord's Day 26, beginning with question and answer 69 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. And now the scripture reading from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you also were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations. It was against us and it stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it. May the Spirit illuminate our hearts this evening as we meditate on this passage. Well, last week, if you're here with us, we considered how the Holy Spirit is the author of our faith. He works saving faith into the heart of every believer through what? Through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Uh, but he doesn't just leave that faith there, unnourished and unstrengthened. Rather, he continues to confirm and strengthen that faith that he plants within us through the use of the holy sacraments, namely 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so tonight, we're meditating on the value and the significance of our water baptism. You know, it seems to me that this is one of those topics, one of those themes in Scripture that is often misunderstood and ignored as an aspect, an important, vital aspect of the Christian life and the Christian faith. Uh, We see it. We observe baptisms on occasion, but we don't often know how to value it or how to apply it into our hearts and minds. And so as we study this passage tonight, I hope that this gives us a greater value and appreciation of our own baptism, of your baptism, as you remember when you too were baptized in the church, and, and also that it would continue to have an ongoing benefit for each and every one of us in our Christian life as we live out our baptism by faith. And so we'll see tonight that our washing by water baptism presupposes a few critical things about who we are and what we need. So first of all, we are empty and we need to be filled. Also, we are dirty sinners in need of forgiveness. And thirdly, We are spiritually dead and need to be reformed with new life by the Spirit of God. Those will be our three points, that baptism speaks of our fullness that we have in Christ, of our forgiveness of all our sins in Christ, and thirdly, our formation in Christ. So first, our fullness in Christ. Baptism speaks of our fullness that we have now in Christ. In verses 6 to 10, if you look back at the passage, we hear Paul His opening exhortation in this part of his letter, exhorting the Colossians to continue living by faith in Jesus, just as they had begun in faith, to continue trusting in him, looking to him by faith. Now, why did Paul need to exhort them in this way? Why did he feel the need to give them this exhortation? What was happening in the city of Colossae? Well, in verse 8, if you look, Paul refers to hollow and deceptive philosophy that was popular. It was circling around them in town. He doesn't want them to fall prey to false teaching. What kinds of false teaching existed? Well, we don't know exactly, but based on a study of this letter and also understanding of the ancient society at that time and that place, it seems there was a mixture of both Jewish and Greek teachings that offered a kind of spiritual wholeness or fullness outside of Christ or in addition to Christ. So Jesus plus, etc., etc., right? And the false teachers, they were probably insisting that Christians need to follow their principles that they laid out for the Christians, for the church, in order to safeguard themselves from a variety of threats that they promoted and talked about, uh, instilling fear in the people and then driving them to their principles that they laid out. So the threat of demons or dark magic. And so they laid out these principles. In order to be safeguarded from demons and dark magic, you need to follow these principles that we're giving you. And they probably also suggested that if you want to reach a higher level of spiritual life in Christ, then you must submit to their laws and to their principles. Now, again, I said we can't exactly know for certain what these hollow and uh, empty, deceitful principles were. But Paul basically is saying they are of no use. They are no good at all. It's bad food 
for your soul. Dangerous. And so, like a good shepherd, Paul here is taking care of the flock of God so that no thief comes in to steal up one of his lambs or feeds them with poison. He wants to give them Christ. And according to verse 9, if you look at verse 9, Paul has one litmus test that he lays out here for sound and healthy teaching. The question is, is it in accordance with Christ? Or is it in accordance with human tradition of the world? So this means that every biblical sound teaching must exalt Christ as Lord and Savior. And every sound teaching derives its authority not from the human preaching, but rather from God's word as an exposition of what God has laid out for us in the Bible. And so we should be asking ourselves as we come underneath preaching or teaching or listen to it or find it written for us somewhere, is it biblical? Is it Christ-centered? Just because it sounds good or seems practical does not mean that it is actually good and nourishing for our souls. So put everything up to that litmus test. Does it agree with who Jesus is and what he did for us? Does it exalt Christ as Lord and Savior? Now, why is this so important? Well, apart from Jesus, Paul is saying here, apart from him, we have no fullness. Fullness. That term is used a few times in this letter. It was probably somewhat of a buzzword in Colossae. So lots of people in the region probably were talking about where fullness in life is found. Uh, perhaps similar to how some words go or catchphrases go trending today with hashtags. So if this happened today, it would probably be hashtag fullness all over the place on social media. Right. Everyone looking for fullness here and there. And where were people apparently looking for fullness? Well, Paul lays it out. Remember, human philosophy. And the Greeks, they were big on philosophy, right? Uh, there were different schools of thought, like the Stoics and the Epicureans. And each thought if they adopted a certain outlook of life and applied those principles, that they would find fullness by their submission to those principles, that they would achieve a state of peace with reality. Well, Paul enters into that debate. And that debate that even is today, where is fullness found? And Paul says, those outlooks on life, those principles, they will not give you peace at the end of the day. But rather, the only one who will is the person, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished for sinners like us. Through his life, death, and resurrection, fullness is found only in him. And so, if you try to find fullness apart from Jesus, at the end of the day, you will be left empty empty, hollow. Uh, even if you try to find fullness with Jesus, you will be left empty. It's not with Jesus. It is in Jesus. He is the one who gives us fullness. And why is that so, according to Paul here? Because in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity, God himself dwells bodily. And as he says earlier, all things are held together by Jesus. This means that he is the only fountain of true and lasting fullness. Only Jesus gives us peace with God, reconciliation, peace for our conscience as we wrestle with the guilt of our sin. He forgives us and peace with one another as well. He reconciles us, breaking down those barriers and walls to create a peace, a unity in a new humanity now as we're united to Christ. And all of this fullness is portrayed to us 
in a sense, by our water baptism. For apart from Jesus, we have no fullness. But in Jesus, united to him, we have all equally received, all equally received his fullness. Not because we have followed principles, but because we are found in the person who grants fullness, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, Jesus Christ. And that union that we have with Christ is pictured for us in water baptism. In a sense, the outpouring of water over us, as water is poured over us, symbolizes the outpouring of the Spirit of God sent by Jesus to fill us up, to make us whole again, to heal our wounds, and to mend our broken hearts. According to Paul, the gift of baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit presupposes that fullness is found in no other name and in no other way but through Jesus Christ. And so, your own water baptism is a reminder to you, it's a reminder to each and every one of us, that we have already been granted this fullness by God himself as a gracious gift to us. It is a gift from God. And therefore, we are not to look for fullness in any other thing or any other place, but in Christ alone. What does that mean practically? Practically, this means that you will not, you will not fulfill your heart's desires by applying principles in your life, by applying religious principles or principles of diet or exercise. You can't find fullness in those things. Yes, they might be beneficial bodily or even emotionally to your well-being, but they will not give you the fullness that you and I were made for. Also, you can't find fullness in a romantic relationship with somebody else. You can't find fullness in your career, which is often what many uh, young people are struggling with today, trying to find fullness in their profession, in their jobs. You can't find fullness either in the approval or admiration of the world. If you try to find fullness in those things, you'll be left empty and hollow. Why? Why? Because we are made in the image of God and for the fullness of God. And therefore, we are incomplete and not whole until we are found resting in him and who he is for us. And this is partially what water baptism declares over us, over you. By it, God has said to you that if you believe in Jesus, you already have the fullness of God. The fullness, far more than what you ever need, is now yours in Christ. You are complete in him. He has made you whole. And beneath this concept of fullness in this passage is a deep uh, kind of understream, underneath the surface of biblical theology, a theme which is the temple of God. You can kind of think of that with fullness, right? Because the temple was a place in the Old Testament where God's presence came and filled up that place, filled up that place to make his people whole, to bring renewal to them. And on this passage, uh, one commentator, G.K. Beale, states this. He says, verse 10 changes the focus to Christ, who has begun to fulfill all to which God's dwelling in the Old Testament pointed. Jesus is the end time temple. In Christ, believers are completed in that they share in the fulfillment of the Old Testament that Christ has brought about. What does this mean? It means that we are now part of God's new temple, 
which is filled with all the fullness of God. And so we are to not strive for fullness as if it's something that depends upon us to achieve and reach out for and grab. Rather, we are to live from the fullness that is already ours in Christ as a gift from God. It's not about how much you do and apply in your life to get fullness. It's about walking in the fullness that Jesus has already given us by his spirit. And this is in part what God is telling us by our water baptism, that he has initiated his gracious relationship with us to fill us up. And so our baptism presupposes our need to be filled, not with the things of the world, but with God himself. We are made for him, and we are not complete until we are found in him, resting. We need God to come over us and to enter into us like a temple to find that fullness, and our baptism speaks of that reality. Now, our second point, baptism also speaks of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. As we think still of that imagery of the temple in the Old Testament, uh, part of the, the role and purpose of the temple was to atone or cover for the sins of God's people, to secure for them the forgiveness of sins by way of the sacrifices that were continually offered there in that place. And now it is Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross that atones and covers all our sins, past, present, and future. Not the temple and its many sacrifices, no, Christ, Christ alone. And water baptism is a sign of this reality if you look back in verses 14 to 15 of the passage at the very end there he deals with the fact that there is this cosmic battle between the powers and authorities and god which refers to satan and his fallen angels the demons and so there's this battle going on and paul does not reject their existence here but he announces christ's victory over them on the cross and in his resurrection and he says that God has disarmed them. This means that he has taken away their greatest weapon against us that scares us, that frightens us, that troubles us. What is that weapon? It is not temptation. It is the legal ability to accuse us of sin and therefore accusing us of being liable of God's just judgment. Uh, What is satan means satan is not exactly a name rather it's a term referring to the accuser and so satan loves to accuse and he loves to point out in god's law how we have fallen short and how we are sinners deserving of god's wrath and judgment but christ came into the world for this purpose to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross in his own body on the tree. Jesus took the full punishment that we deserved, all of God's righteous anger, all of his judgment that we deserve for disobeying his law. Christ took upon himself to cancel it, to say the debt has been paid in full. And our water baptism speaks of that cleansing that we now have from all our sins. It is not that the water itself cleans us, no, but rather it is a sign pointing to the blood of Christ that he shed. Think of that. He literally spilt his blood 2,000 plus years ago on that cross of Calvary, shedding his precious blood in order to forgive us all our sins. 
There is virtue and power in the blood of Christ to blot out all our guilty stains and present us as clean, innocent, and righteous before God, not based on any merits of our own, but based on the merits of Christ alone. And so we are forgiven. Are we forgiven based on our own obedience to God's principles of the law? No, by no means. It is not ourselves who are called to wash ourselves. It's not us and our responsibility to constantly be washing ourselves to try and make amends with God and to forgive ourselves of our sins. No, it is God who comes with his word of grace and he washes us. He has washed us with the blood of his one and only son. And we receive that benefit of cleansing of all our sins, forgiveness of each and every error that we have committed, every word misspoken, every evil thought, Every evil action, Christ took the full punishment and has forgiven us all that sin. This is hard for us to believe, and sometimes as we go through our week and we feel the conviction of our sin when we mess up or slip up and we violate God's commands and sin against him or do harm to our neighbor, we feel pressed down with guilt at times. Well, practically, how can we apply the benefit of our baptism. Well, I like to think of the reformer Martin Luther, how when he was pressed down at times and guilty in his conscience, convicted of sin, he would go to a sink with water and he'd take that water and splash it on his face and say, I am baptized into Christ. His blood has washed away all my sins. I am one who has been baptized into Christ. He remembered his baptism. He applied it. And so let us also do the same as we remember that we are those who were baptized uh, into Christ and that God has washed us and cleansed us of all our sins with his precious blood and has filled us with all the fullness of God. So we've seen that baptism speaks of our need of fullness. You can't find fullness apart from Christ. Secondly, also it speaks about the forgiveness of sins, that cleansing bath in his blood, which are only found in Christ by union with him. Now, thirdly, formation in Christ. What else does baptism presuppose about us? Well, it presupposes this, that we're all born in sin and born with a sinful, dead nature, our old self that must die in order to give rise to a new self, reborn in Christ, a new creature to rise from the ashes, in a sense. And notice in verses 11 to 13 in our passage how Paul links circumcision and baptism and shows how both point to death. They're both, in a sense, signs of death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, the walking dead, but now God has made us alive together with Christ. And how so? Through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection applied to us. Circumcision, Paul uses here to point to the death of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is likely a reference to Christ himself on the cross of Calvary being cut off in God's holy anger, his righteous wrath, where he was cut off from all the blessings of the presence of God and instead forsaken on the cross for us, for our sins. And he willingly took that curse for us so that it does not fall on us. And Paul is saying here mysteriously, and this is really hard to wrap our minds around and fully understand, but in some mysterious sense, our old sinful nature was crucified with Christ on that cross. He was crucifying. He was putting to death our old sinful nature. And so 
Uh, Since he willfully chose to die in our place, the power of Jesus' death comes now by the Spirit and puts to death our sinful nature. He executes our old self, little by little. You see, our old self needs to be executed, put to death. We don't just need a little makeover. No, we don't just uh, need a, uh, a little growing up and maturing to improve ourselves. We need a total renovation. We need to be, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born again, born again. And this is referring to a total transformation in Christ that must take place and takes place in every believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is also called regeneration, of giving of new life, rebirth. And this transformation is not done, Paul says, by human hands. It's not like circumcision, which was done by human hands, but it is a circumcision of the heart done by the Spirit of God at work in us, inside of us, spiritually cutting off the old self and giving life to the new that is created in Christ Jesus. And so both circumcision and baptism point to this new formation that Jesus works into believers. Circumcision was a cutting off for the sake of purity, and baptism is this visible word about how Christ went down into the waters of judgment in our old self as well with him. And he rose up from the dead and with him, our new self has been risen as well. And so we have newness of life through the resurrection of Christ. This radical transformation that the spirit is working within each and every believer. C.S. Lewis has an astounding helpful illustration that that shows us what this transformation looks like and how it's sometimes painful and a bit shocking for us in our christian life he says at first um, it's kind of like an old building that is being renovated and at first the person uh, thinks that the renovations will be minor Uh, we don't need to make that many renovations Um, but as time goes on he realizes that basically the whole thing needs to be torn down to be built back up again the whole thing needs to be remade he writes this he says imagine yourself as a living house and so in the illustration you are this living house and god comes in to rebuild that house at first perhaps you can understand what he is doing he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on you knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised but presently He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, and that's referring to how he's cutting out the old nature and our old bad habits and desires. And it hurts. It's painful, right? What is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Christians, he is building a palace out of you, the dwelling place of God. He intends to come and live inside you by his spirit. And so this spiritual transformation that he works in us as The catechism says from scripture itself is a washing of regeneration. And that too is pictured for us in baptism. It's not always comfortable. It's a putting to death our old self and and to giving new life to the new creature that Christ is making us into by the spirit. And so our old self dies 
slowly, painfully, but surely as well, the Spirit causes our new nature in Christ to rise in newness of life, to obey him all the more as he's making us into that palace for his presence. And Luther, again, he applies baptism in this way. In his catechism, he says this, the Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism. So each day is a daily baptism, begun once and continuing ever after. For we must keep at it without ceasing, ceasing, always purging whatever pertains to the old self, so that whatever belongs to the new creature may come forth. Each day we are to live out our baptism in that sense. We are to put to death our old self and ask God by his spirit to cause us to rise in newness of life, that he would continue that transformation of our hearts, which is not worked by hands, but is worked by the spirit of God. And so in conclusion tonight, let us lean into the value and significance of our baptism, which speaks of our union with Christ. Remember that baptism reminds us that apart from Jesus, we are empty, but with him, we have been filled with all the fullness of God as his new temple people. Also, baptism reminds us that we can find forgiveness and peace in our hearts only through the precious blood of Christ shed for us. The water that washes away dirt is just a picture of how we need Jesus' blood to wash away those guilty stains, to cancel that record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, and surely he has canceled it. He has canceled it. Satan has no basis to accuse you before the Father if you are found in Christ by faith and washed by the blood of Jesus. Believe in the promise of your baptism and know that God has forgiven you all your sins and you are no longer under the condemnation of God's law. And lastly, baptism speaks of that continual transformation. The whole Christian life is like a daily baptism until at last we are formed into the image of Christ. At last we shall be formed into the image of Christ in the glorification with him and we will be with god in glory dwelling in his presence in perfect peace and fullness may god bring us to that end together amen let's pray father god we thank you for this time to pause and meditate on perhaps a forgotten and misunderstood undervalued gift that you have given us baptism and lord we have truly only scratch the surface and there's more to learn. And so we ask that you would apply these truths as they are found in your word to our hearts and cause us to walk in greater obedience and gratitude and thanks to you for what you have done for us in Christ, the fullness we have, the forgiveness we have in him and the new formation that we have by the spirit of God in and through the power of Christ's death and resurrection Work these realities into our hearts and bring us into glory with you, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.